It's my honor and privilege to invite you once again to open your Bible to the book of 1 Peter. If you didn't bring a Bible with you to church today, there's one provided for you in the pew ahead of you. It is black, and we'll be on page 1016, I think, of that Bible. The epistle of 1 Peter, as we've learned uh, throughout this series, is uh, written by the Apostle Peter, and it is largely about the subject of Christian suffering. And it is an attempt to understand Christian suffering, or explain it rather, And this passage that we're about to open this morning is no exception. But I did want to let you know about this particular passage. Um, It's probably the most difficult passage in the book of 1 Peter to understand. Some would even consider it to be the most difficult in the entire Bible. Uh, And uh, if you are reading it, as we read it in a a moment here, and you're you're looking at this and you're thinking, uh, what? I just want to give you this consolation. Um... I got no idea what it means either, for the most part. So uh, I'm going to do my best this morning and uh, try and explain it to you and try and explain how it applies to the issue of Christian suffering. We're going to spend the next 35 or 45 minutes working through these verses, and then we're going to save some time at the end for communion. Uh, So welcome to church. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 18. For Christ also suffered... Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Will you pray with me? Father, I want to say thank you for passages like this, which remind me, left to my own, there's little chance I would ever understand the Bible. But nevertheless, Father, you have given your Holy Spirit to us so that we might understand it. And so I'm asking, gracious Father, if you would do us this favor and send your spirit to help us this morning as we try and attempt to unpack the understanding behind these verses. Would you equip me, your servant, to speak rightly according to this passage? And would you strike my tongue mute before I speak one word that is contrary to yours? So that your people would be edified not by my words or my thoughts or my opinions, but by your inerrant, infallible word. I pray this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' praise. And Cornerstone said, Amen. There's an important principle when you encounter a difficult Bible passage. And what you need to do is when when you're reading through the Bible and you come across a passage that's just wild and just doesn't make any sense, what you should do is 
the first thing you should do, I think, is to look at that passage and look for the things that are straightforward in it. Look for the things that make the most sense, things that are the most clear, and extract meaning from them. So for the most part, what we're going to do, most of the time I'm going to spend with you this morning is going to be spent on the first verse because it makes a lot of sense. It's easy. Well, it's not easy, but it makes a lot of sense. So we're going to spend most of our time on that. But the other thing you want to do and when you encounter difficult passages in the Bible is uh, to read context. And what I mean by that is you read what came before that passage, you read what comes after that passage. And you ask questions like, why, what does this have to do with what came before it? How does this set up what comes after it? And sometimes that it doesn't always make it easy, but it gets you on the path to helping you understand where this fits. You're just asking the question, like, why would Peter's mind go here? So we're reading through this, and we're thinking, why would Peter's mind go back to Noah? And what does this have to do with Jesus? And what does it have to do with God's patience? And what, what in the world does baptism have to do with all of this? And so you're asking these questions of the text. That's, that's the second thing you want to do. What you never want to do when you encounter a difficult passage is to get frustrated and close your Bible and never go back. To give up. You never, ever want to do that. You wrestle. You lean into the text. You fight with the text. You, you have to work on it until you can wrench. You remember Jacob fought with the angel, wouldn't let the angel go until he got the blessing. You do the same thing with the Bible. You grab a hold of that Bible and you, you, you wrench meaning out of it. You try and work and find where the meaning is. You don't put meaning in there. You find the meaning out of it and don't let it go until you find that blessing. So this is what I've attempted to do with this passage. It remains to see, and I suppose, whether I've had any success at all. You'll decide, I'm sure. But as I've pressed into this text, something helpful that I saw here in this passage was in looking at context, I noticed uh, verses 18 and 20 are kind of framed by similar statements. You can see this if you have a Bible open. You can see this in verse 17. We did this last weekend. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. We're talking about suffering. Then you go all the way to the end of the passage and look at the first verse in the next chapter, which is 4.1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So what we are doing, what we're seeing here is 18 to 20, whatever they mean, somehow they're framed within uh, the, the subject of Christian suffering. So um, that's enough to indicate to me that whatever is within the frame of Christian suffering is somehow preparing the Christian reader for right thinking regarding suffering according to God's will or suffering for righteousness sake. So this was to me most helpful because it just tells me that whatever Peter means by these verses in here, which are difficult to understand to be sure, they do equip us somehow with right thinking as to suffer for righteousness sake. Okay. Is everybody with me? All right. Verse 18. As I said, we're going to spend most of our time on this verse, the victory of Christ's suffering. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So what help can Peter give those in these elect exiles that he's writing this letter to? What help can he give them regarding the suffering they're undergoing for being Christians? And and here's something he says. This is huge. This is the hugest of the huge. He says, Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That is the biggest help of all regarding Christian suffering. And I hope in the next 20 minutes to explain why that is a tremendous help. For one, Jesus did not 
avoid suffering to accomplish salvation for you and I. Through Jesus' suffering, he saved us. Though he was guilty of no sin, he suffered the guilt of our sin to bring us to God. It's the message of the gospel. The righteous suffering for the unrighteous. You see, because between God and between us, there is an impassable chasm. A canyon that cannot be crossed. God is righteous over here. We are unrighteous over here. And there is no way for us to find our way to God. And so what God did was he wrapped himself in human flesh and he suffered the penalty of our sin in order to bring us across that great canyon to God. He had no sin and he paid the penalty of all sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. It reminds me, of a fascinating custom in the Old Testament that God gave to the people of Israel. He told Moses and and Moses' brother Aaron, who was the high priest, he told him that there was a way for them to approach God. You understand, in the Old Testament, the presence of God dwelt among his people in a high concentrated way. He he dwelt among them as they traveled through the wilderness in in a structure that they called the tabernacle. And later they called it a temple. It was more permanent. Inside the tabernacle, their innermost room of the tabernacle, there was a a room called the holiest place, the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies, God's presence dwelled in the highest concentration on top of a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And one couldn't just, if you were in Israel in that day, you couldn't just walk your way any way you wanted into the holiest of holiest and, and, and pray to God. You couldn't go in there. In fact, just, not just any person could go there. Only a few people could even get close. The priests were allowed to get close. And only one guy was allowed into the holiest place. And he was only allowed to go one time per year. But there was a process that God gave to the, to the nation of Israel by which they were to approach his presence in the most holy place. That one day a year is called Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. And here's what God told them to do in Leviticus chapter 16. You could read about it uh, this week. God said, you take two goats, two live goats, and you cast lots for them. And his lots were like these black and white. They're like dice kind of like thing. You would cast lots. One of the goats would be designated for the Lord. Okay. One would be designated for the people. The one that was designated for the Lord, they would kill that goat. They would take its blood and give it to the high priest. And the high priest would go into the holiest place on Yom Kippur on the one day per year. And he would take the blood of that goat and he would sprinkle it on that box, on the top of it, on the mercy seat, the the lid for the box. Only once per year, and this is what he had to do. The one goat that was designated for the people, this is what they would do. This is what God says in Leviticus 16. Aaron, that's the high priest, that's Moses' brother, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put on them, on, put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. 
The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. This is where we get the word in our English language, scapegoat. Two goats, one dies, one goes free. The one without sin dies. The one bearing sin goes free. This was, of course, foreshadowing what God would do in Christ in sending Jesus to come in our place. He who was without sin became sin for us in order that we might be righteous before God. God took your sins, placed them on Jesus, the righteous one, and he dies, and the unrighteous one goes free. Jesus did this, Peter says, to bring us to God. You see, Cornerstone, sin is a gigantic problem. What makes sin a problem is God, the holiness of God. We can't just approach God any way we want to. Our sin makes us unfit for his presence and for heaven. So what did God do to solve that problem? God sends his own, so, his own son to die to remove sin. And so if you confess your sin and trust Jesus has paid your sin on the cross, this is the greatest news. You can stand before God without sin. Jesus made you fit for heaven. And therefore, you're free to serve him as the Lord of your life because he suffered and you went free. And so you and I, we can endure whatever suffering comes our way, serving Jesus, knowing that he suffered for our sin to make us clean, to make us free, and to make us fit for heaven. We're safe in him. Notice, if you will, Peter says, Christ suffered once for sin to bring us to God. There are no accidental words in the Bible. No word in the Scripture is a throwaway word. This is no exception. This, is, this four-letter word, once, is a massive word. It's very simple to understand, but very difficult to work out. The word once means one time for all time. Once for all and never again. Christ suffered once for all and never again. Here's what God is telling us through the Apostle Peter. This is something we ought to preach to ourselves every day we are still alive. Because here are the implications of what Peter is saying. There is no penance. There is no act of good deeds. There is no payback for your sin. Brothers and sisters, we ought to resist with all our might every notion that we must pay God back for our sins. When we sin, turn to God humbly, repent fully, trust in God completely, resolve to serve Him faithfully, push, delete, and move on. Jesus suffered on the cross for sin, one suffering for all time. Every day, every time, uh, 
God is not preeminent in our life. God is not the delight of our life and we turn away from him into some sinful thing and wreck our lives. We don't have to pay God back. We just repent. And every single time you come to the Lord in repentance by saying, Father, I recognize I did wrong. Please forgive me. Three words ought to cross our lips every single time. It is finished. Listen to me. Every ounce of suffering for your sin was paid on the cross by your Savior. Jesus' sacrifice was the final, complete, exhaustive, total, absolute, utter, comprehensive, perfect, finished offering. And we have to preach this to ourselves every single day. We don't pay God back with penance, with good deeds. We don't appease his anger by being nice or by doing right. Consider what it is that we are saying when we try and pay God back by suffering ourselves. wasn't enough. I got to finish what you couldn't finish. There's still more suffering yet to do for me, Jesus. Pick up your slack. This is what we're doing when we try to use good deeds to pay God back for forgiveness. So let me be clear, if I haven't been already by yelling. If you are a repentant Christian, there is no more suffering left for your sins. Period. End of story. No exceptions. God will not, does not punish you for your sin. God does not, will not punish you for your sin. Every bit of suffering has already been paid. And so, I apologize for yelling, but I am weary of this Christian nonsense that somehow God is punishing me because I didn't read my Bible enough or I didn't pray enough or I give in to the besetting sins in my life and I fall into temptation over and over and over again. So all of a sudden, woe is me because God is punishing me for my sins. I am weary of that message. What an offense that is. Have you read what Jesus suffered for your sake? Have you read what he endured? And are you willing to say it wasn't enough? 
He's going to beat your, you suffer in your own body? Because he couldn't cut it? Let's just dispense with this notion that somehow we're being suffered because of sin. But this, friends, I want you to understand, this is tremendous help to those who are suffering. Because this is what it means. While you're enduring suffering for being a Christian, God is not punishing you. He already punished Jesus. Wherever suffering comes from, it is not punishment. It is meant for God's glory. It is meant for the advance of the gospel. And ultimately, it is meant for your good. Your suffering, if you are a Christian, means something beautiful and something wonderful will come from it. Either this life or the next, it will come. But I assure you, Cornerstone, it is not punishment for your sins. One more encouragement I see in verse 18 for Christian sufferers. Jesus suffered in our place to bring us to God. As I said and inferred a little bit earlier, God's presence and His holiness is lethal without Jesus. But with Jesus... The very presence of God, which is lethal without him. When you are in Christ, God's presence, Psalm 16 says, is pleasure forevermore. It is delight. It is pure joy. A couple of weeks ago, us friends and, and us, we went to uh, Pizza Hut. And as we were walking into the restaurant, there was a lady walking out of the restaurant. And uh, she had a brightly colored T-shirt on, a middle-aged lady, and, and uh, emblazoned on this T-shirt were the words, only God can judge me. And, you know, usually by that statement, what people mean is, I get to do, I, I do what I want. Don't you judge me, because only God is my judge. And this is puzzling to me. Do you mean to say that the one being in the universe, who can read your thoughts, who knows the motivations of your heart. He's the only one who is judging you, and somehow this is consolation to you? If anything, you would want a human judge. Because they can't see what's going on in here. They don't know what you're really feeling when you say sorry. God does. Only God can judge me? Are you kidding me? It's true. But why would you want that? The Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 18, I want you to see, is ordered in a very particular way. Without the suffering of Christ the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Going to God is not good news. Without the cross, I promise you, you don't want anything to do with God. But with the cross, oh, how sweet His 
presence is. Oh, how wonderful and delightful it is to be among God's people singing his praise in his very presence. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. This is a divine act of mercy. The exclusivity of Christ is not unkindness. It is the greatest act of kindness there is. Because without Christ, if you find another way, the cross, God's presence is bad news. Without the cross, you carry sin into his presence, which carries the penalty of eternal death. So, dear Christian, as you face down suffering for his name's sake, remember that through Jesus Christ you've been brought to God. And the very moment that you utter the words, Our Father who art in heaven, you are instantly in his presence and have his ear. Unlike the priests who had to carry blood into a scary holy place, Jesus' blood made the way for you to approach the throne. And Hebrews says you can do it boldly. God gave you his own son for you to be with him. And how does this change the way we view Christian suffering? When we understand that he paid the highest price to have us That means he won't leave us alone in suffering. The suffering is for our good. If he gave Jesus to save us, then he won't spare any expense to bring us to heaven. Whatever suffering is, it is not punishment. It is not separation from him. It is something good. It is something God exalting. It is something beautiful. Everyone still with me? Because here's where it gets murky. All right, let's turn to the next verse. This is where it gets a little murky. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went, that's Jesus, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, whoever they are, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. There it is. That's what we have to untangle. Here's what we have to figure out in order to understand this passage. What is meant by Jesus going and proclaiming to spirits in prison? What does that mean? We've got to figure out also, who are these spirits? So what is this prison, and what are these spirits? What does it have to do with Noah's Ark? Those eight people. What does it have to do with God's patience? And then also, how does this apply whatsoever to the issue of Christian suffering? How is this to be an encouragement to me in Christian suffering? So, here's what I'm going to do. There are four major interpretations of this passage. None of them are heretical. All of them are just an attempt to understand it. Okay, so I'll give you all four. I'm going to tell you which one I think is right today. And I will let you decide which you think fits this passage 
the best. So ready to go? Here's, here's the first one. The first interpretation of this passage comes from this, from St. Augustine and many after him. He, he says that Peter is saying that the spirit of Jesus Christ who was raised during the resurrection preached through Noah in Noah's day, while Noah, we know that Noah was a preacher, and it was actually the spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, was preaching through Noah to the people of Noah's day while the ark was being built. Jesus was not personally present there. His spirit was preaching, and those who rejected Noah's slash Jesus preaching in, are in prison. They're the ones in hell. That's St. Augustine. The second and the third options are very similar, so I'll combine them. Basically, the second and third option is this. What Peter is saying is that between Jesus' death, his physical death, and between his physical resurrection, those three days, Jesus went to the place of the dead, and there in the place of the dead were all the Old Testament people who died before Jesus. Everybody who died before Jesus was being held in this prison. And Jesus went there between his death and his resurrection and he preached the gospel, basically. He preached his sacrifice for sins. And those that believed him in that place, he carried them into heaven. That's a crude explanation of the second and third view. The fourth view, which is the majority view of Bible scholars, is this. Peter's referring to Christ's proclamation of victory over the forces of evil. So the spirits are evil spirits. And Jesus is proclaiming total victory over all the forces of darkness through his death and resurrection. And in this view, of course, Jesus did not descend into hell. Peter is saying his death is an announcement of total victory over the forces of darkness. I take the fourth view. For today. There's a few reasons why I think this is the right one. The first is that in, in the Greek, the original language that the New Testament was written in, the word spirits in verse 19 is always in reference to evil spirits. The second option, I, I think, uh, the second reason I believe this is because I think it fits best with verse 22, which we'll get to in a minute, in which Jesus is the Lord of the angels and authorities and powers. So I think it fits in right nicely with that. But the, re- the biggest reason that I think that the fourth interpretation is right is because I think it provides the greatest support to those Christians who are suffering. Knowing that Jesus has suffered to bring us to God, that the death and resurrection of Jesus was total victory over the forces of darkness, and he proclaims that victory to them. So that if we are, are in Christ, and Jesus is our Lord, we're safe in him from all forces of evil. Neither death nor life, angels, rulers, powers can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's that's what I think it means. So the, the eight people who were brought safely through the flood of God's judgment by entering the ark is likened to us who are in Christ who will be brought safely through the waters of suffering whenever it comes. That that's what I think it means. But ultimately, you decide which you think fits this passage best. And just to make matters even more murky, 
Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Of course, baptism has to do with Noah's Ark. That's what I was thinking. Now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven. Now, this could be, when Peter says baptism, he could be referring to water baptism, which we celebrated a few weeks ago. It's hard to be sure. Probably not. It seems to me Peter is not referring to water baptism because, uh, well, there's a number of reasons, I suppose. One of the reasons uh, would be you've got to contend with this thing about baptism, which now saves you, which gets really tricky. Because almost no evangelicals believe that the actual physical ceremony of baptism is a salvific or that it brings salvation into a person's life. We think that you're saved and then you're baptized. It's a celebration. It's a ceremony of your salvation. But the actual physical going under the water, coming up out of the water, doesn't actually actually save you. And there's a number of reasons for this. Namely, the thief on the cross didn't get baptized. Deathbed conversions. Wayne Grudem is helpful here. He says, baptism now saves you, not the outward physical ceremony, but the inward spiritual reality which baptism represents, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for good conscience, which has been cleaned by Jesus' blood. So it seems to me what Peter is saying here is he's referring to baptism in a similar way that Paul uses baptism in Romans 6 and Galatians 3 when he uses the phrase, baptized into Christ, meaning you were immersed into him, into his life, into his death, and into his resurrection eventually. I know that's a bit confusing. So the eight people in the ark, saved from God's judgment, and those who are in Jesus are saved in the same way. So Peter is saying, if you're baptized into Christ, you're in Jesus, you're safe. And you can appeal to God because his death made your conscience clean. And this strengthens us during suffering because it reminds us that we've passed through the waters of judgment. The water of judgment was poured out on Jesus instead of on us. We're buried with Jesus. We're raised to new life with Jesus. Totally, and, and listen, if you're immersed in suffering, you can know that it is not for your sin. It is not for uh, judgment on your life. That Christian suffering doesn't ultimately lead to death because you're in Christ. Christian suffering ultimately leads to new life. So do what you want with those verses. That's my best attempt at it. The last verse in chapter 3 says, Jesus has gone into heaven, we'll wrap on this, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So the conclusion of the matter is this, that whatever this passage means, we are sure that if we are in Christ, we have zero reason to fear suffering. You are as safe in Christ as Noah was in the ark. Though suffering may come, you'll be lifted above it. You'll get rained on, and you'll be stuck in a big boat full of stinky animals. It's no fun, but you get to breathe air. You get to live. Here's what we know. Sort of a recap. Your suffering as a Christian is not for your sin. 
I, I didn't I didn't include this in my notes, but some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, but like doesn't God bring bad things into my life when I do wrong? Like if I'm terrible with money, if I just sin against God with money, like won't it wreck wreck my life? If I'm just totally sinful in my marriage, won't it wreck my marriage? Is that God judging me for my sin? Not if you're in Christ. There's discipline. But discipline and suffering, punishment rather, are very different things. Discipline and punishment are very different things. One leads you to God and one sends you away from Him eternally. Friends, if we were being punished for our sins, then we would be in hell. That's the only punishment. So it's discipline. So here's what we know. Suffering is not for your sin. Jesus already suffered for your sin. Your suffering is not because God has forsaken you, because Jesus was forsaken by God for you. You know that your suffering will not lead to death because Jesus has already died to bring you life. And verse 22 teaches us that Jesus is at the right hand and all authority is his. Whether we suffer at the hands of any force in heaven, on earth, it's all under Jesus' authority, which leads us to conclude with great confidence that our suffering means something for our good because God is sovereign over it all. It is for God's glory. It is for the advance of God's gospel. And so we can stand firm and we can face suffering, confident that the sovereign God of the universe Verse has all things under his control. We can stand up straight and we can share the gospel boldly knowing that God gave his own son to bring us to him, which is the only safe place to be. Amen? Let's stand to our feet. Corey and Mary are going to come back and they're going to begin another song. And I want to give you the option this morning of participating with your church family in the sacrament ordinance of communion. So this is how we're going to do this. They're going to start singing, and I'm going to invite you to come forward and and take of the juice and to take of the cracker and carry them back to your seat. And then uh, I'll come back up here after everybody has their elements, and and I'll lead you in Holy Communion. But let me just say this about communion. Communion is for Christians. And if you're still trying to work this thing out about Jesus, about whether this guy really said what he did, whether he really raised from the dead, you're still trying to work that out, then I just ask that you would pass on communion this morning. But if you are in Christ, if you've repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus and you're in good standing with your home church, then you're welcome to participate at the Lord's table with us and celebrate what Jesus did at the cross. Father, I thank you for what you've done for us in saving us from our sins. I thank you, Jesus, that though you had no guilt of sin, you bore the guilt of all all our sins to bring us to God. And so this morning, as we prepare to take this morning Holy Communion, would you make these elements mean something to us? That these symbols would have profound meaning to us. And this would not be ritualistic. It would be something in celebration 
of the Lord's death until he comes. In Jesus' name I pray.